0: Welcome back. This is the third episode of our four-part podcast accompanying the exhibition, I've Seen the Wall, Louis Armstrong on Tour in the GDR in 1965. We're Jason Moran and Paula Malavasi, curators of the exhibition, and we're very happy to have Tina M. Kamp with us here today. Tina M. Kamp, Roger S. Berlin Professor of Humanities at Princeton University, is an author, black feminist theorist of visual culture and contemporary art, and also a contributor to the catalogue of our exhibition. Welcome, Tina. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Applause. Round of applause. (laughs) You made it sound like there's a lot of people in the room. I like that.
0: (laughs) Thanks so much for being with us, Tina. And thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Today, we want to talk about the political background of the show, and about the issues of discrimination within this tour and in the mid 1960s in the US and in Germany. We all met uh, years ago in Berlin. Uh, it was the first time that Jason and I collaborated. He improvised, actually, to the piece Apex by Arthur Jaffa. Um The title of the performance was Apex Variations. And you came all over yes. from New York to see that performance, I Tina, did. then so that was
1: a moment where we all three were in the same
0: room right oh yeah, wow, that's yeah
2: true. That's
1: it was deep. great it was really profound I'd never seen anybody tr- attempt to accompany AJ mm. or AJ's work mm. and so I had ex- enormous respect for you <laughs> <laughs> because I mean apex is an oh, intense it's an assault. <laughs> yeah it is an assault
0: began playing to the sound Mm. and it faded more and more away Mm -hmm. and at the end you were all alone in the very low keys of the piano Mm. I remember Mm. every part of that performance Um, and it changed uh, also the work of AJ Mm. And that was an incredible interaction. That's an interaction that only a friend of an artist can make. It changes the color of the work.
1: That was one instance where the visualization of sound, right, was unmistakable Mm. because these were black and white images Mm. but you were giving them colors and you were transforming how we interacted with those images by transforming quite literally the temperature of the room Mm. and so it would go from that that um, the kind of techno house beat and as that as that diminished and fell away We were all with you. Mm. And so the color, the temperature, the timbre of the images did something to me differently Mm. by virtue of the fact that you had actually changed the temperature and the color of the images through your improvisation. Mm. I
2: mean, I uh, I guess that's a part that musicians talk about a lot. And sometimes they want to study it. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they just want to let it be what it's going to be, is this color. some musicians, like Elvin Jones, often talked about the colors that he saw when he hit the cymbals behind John Coltrane. Mm-hmm. This is purple, You know, like he saw it and it felt, he didn't, wasn't necessarily talking about synesthesia either. Mm-hmm. He mm-hmm. talking about temperature, too, mm-hmm. because he knew what making heat was for a musician as voracious as John Coltrane was. Mm-hmm. And I think Armstrong understands this part, too, Mm-hmm. Like trying to figure out what are the ways that a band can create friction off of the counterpoint mm-hmm. of one another that then gets to the audience. That the audience feels like, oh my, wow. You I mean this band can move this nimble, all these notes, some prepared, some not. And all of that friction and heat that it makes that mm-hmm. then makes us like wonder why we like the music mm-hmm. or dis- or. Disdain the music too because mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> that, mm-hmm. that what happened and what Armstrong and his bands over the years tried to figure out with audiences, right? You know, and that maybe b- leads us, I mean, leads us to <laughs> the title of your essay. <laughs> um, I'm gonna practice my German, German, vision <laughs> Turner. Very <laughs> good, okay. wow, yes. okay, well, please. <laughs> but I wonder, you know, maybe you can talk about how yeah. this term. Uh, opens up.
1: Well, I have to give credit where credit is due, which is Paula. Actually, it slipped into our conversation when we were first talking about the exhibition, and when she was inviting me to contribute a piece for it, and she said, "You know, what is sort of the the core of this exhibition is not simply the occasion." Of Armstrong's tour but the kickoff of that tour which was this extraordinary um, interview and uh, not interview it was a press conference um, where he was introduced to the East German press um, and this tour was really lauded as historic which it was it was absolutely historic um, but it was painful the uh, the again talking about the the temperature of the room um that must have been nearly unbearable on the one hand um because he was being asked to my mind the same question over and over again so who is your audience is your audience black is your audience white um and he would and it was it was also in translation right so they were asking some questions were in german some questions mostly were in english um but he was being translated to by an interpreter sitting right next to him and you would see him get agitated because they wanted him to say something about race they really wanted him to talk about discrimination to talk about what it meant to be in conversation with an a white audience as if it were different for him. But it wasn't different for him. And he kept giving them answers that they didn't want to accept about the relationship between him and his audience being about the music. Um, And as you would listen to him say this over and over again in different ways, what Paula asked me to do is she said, you know, you might attend to, I would really love to hear what you think about the sushin tuna. Tzishn is the preposition meaning between. Tone means sound or color. And tuna is the, the plural of either the sound or the tone color. Literally, it means the sounds in between or the colors in between. So it's the, the, it's the hue or the, the tint between red and blue, for example. And so more colloquially, it either means subtext or um, subtleties or undertones or even overtones, right? It's everything that is being said without being said. And so the invitation again to listen to this press conference for what is being said without saying it um, was extraordinary to me. And it's also um, thinking about it as the color of a conversation. We just, you know, in, in talking about the ways in which sound can and is always colored, and you're responding to it based on the intensity of those colors or based on the subtlety of those colors. Um, I've been writing. Uh, quite literally a piece on the idea of after images and after images is the is the sensation that you see something when it's no longer there so for example if you're looking at the sun and you look away or if you look at something that's brightly lit and then you look away and you still see the outline of that person um, that's an after image and an after image is both something that occurs in your retina that your retina does but it's also your memory it's you're remembering who was right there before the color of the room changed, but I'm interested in, and this actually goes to the um, something that I've been writing about, or the in that essay, I'm actually interested in shifting the idea of afterimages away from the bright colors to the blue colors, because I think that blue does the same thing, um, but it does it in darkness. It does it in terms of creating ghosts. And so one of the, one of the um, pieces in the show is Glenn Ligon's piece untitled Bruise Blues. And it is a piece that puts together two words, bruise and blues in blue. And it emanates that blue. And that blue is signifies. That blue signifies as blues. That blue signifies as a bruise, that blues signifies as um, the uniforms of police and the brutality that they can inflict on, on black communities. And he actually curated, um, he curated a, um, a show in relationship to black and blue. And everything was about blue and how intense blue is the multiple hues of blue and to me i'm trying to actually understand or think about how it's not just the bright colors it's really those sort of subliminal colors that can impact us and actually provoke us in ways that you know are actually more subtle and more intense <laughs> you know <laughs> than the bright lights that we're actually trying to that 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 after images are supposed to be able to that are supposed to to solicit after images. Wow! Oh, my goodness! Wow! <laughs> you okay. ready to sit down for this feast? Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> this
2: blue feast. Ooh.
0: We have been talking about Swish and Tuna and these tones in between, and I personally love that song you wrote during the pandemic in your record. The sound will tell you. Toni Morrison said, Black is a rainbow.
2: Toni talks about potential sound all the time. You hear her novel as much as you read it. And uh, in a very dark place, of which I felt we were all in the pandemic, I felt she brought up so much uh, layers of the darkness that I wanted to write something that would live at the bottom of the piano. Uh, And so this piece, Black is a Rainbow, Kind of taken from the novel Song of Solomon, starts to pull at the pace of which I would I like reading her text at, which is kind of slow and deliberate. (laughs) And so it's one of the slower pieces that I've written. Um, But it's a as if I'm reading the text in my mind.
0: What is the quote?
2: Oh, it's a long one. We were lost in, no, and talking about lost. So you think. Dark is just one color, but it ain't. There's five or six kinds of black, some silky, some woolly, some just empty. And it don't stay still. It moves and changes from one kind of black to another. Saying something that's pitch black is like saying something that's green. What kind of green? Green like my bottles, green like a grasshopper, green like a cucumber, or green like the sky is just before it breaks loose to storm. Well, night black is the same way. May as well be a rainbow.
0: The reason why I thought about you was listening to you at the Gruppiusbau in Berlin talking about listening to images. Now you talked about um, the color and temperature of the sound Mm -hmm. that is like the other way around. What, what is listening to images? And how can we listen to images? Because I loved that concept. It seemed to be like what is happening in between again. Susan
1: I started writing about the idea of listening to images when I was writing about family photography. And I was writing about the family photography of black Germans who I had interviewed who had lived through the Nazi period and I would look at their photographs and their photographs looked so familiar. (laughs) They just looked so familiar and I realized I was certainly projecting into those images, images from my own family. And I am not alone in doing that, right? So what I'm responding to is both what I see and more than what I see. It's what I bring to it And it's where it takes me. And I find that naming that process of attunement, naming it listening, um, is helpful to me because what it does is that it makes us think about what listening actually is. That unlike seeing, listening requires contact. It requires sound to actually penetrate us physically and not just through our eardrums, right? Not just, not just through that one place. It requires us to feel a vibration. That's something that I want us to actually be more attentive to when we're thinking about how we see and what we see. And by doing that, we don't take it for granted. We don't expect that, um, that an image is going to tell the truth, <laughs> right? Right now, that's one thing we know about images, is that they're not necessarily telling you the truth. But by listening to them, you hear the multiplicity of what resonates within them and beyond them. And you ask yourself, you have to interrogate them to say, where is this coming from? Not that it's coming from that image. Where is it coming from? Which makes us, again, much more open, right, to the multiplicity of registers that that allow us to apprehend a given image in a multitude of ways.
2: An image also has an ability to to walk away from you. <laughs> and I think in the in the exhibition, it has such a the the tone of the exhibition, there's a downstairs and an upstairs, a first half, a second half with an intermission when you walk up the stairs. Is when you arrive at Glenn's piece then there's there's also the the space between the two the two vibrating uh neons there's a there's a gap in between of which adrian piper's card sits very near (laughs) i think as curators we may have depended on our audience to feel like they would see something and then felt like they felt they saw the reflection of it four works later but may not have ever planned that they were still seeing ligons blue might still be vibrating in them and the need, I think, for an audience to feel like they may be then on the other side of that thing being apprehended, mm-hmm. that the image is actually coming for you. Um, and was a thing that I think in thinking about, because a lot of the questions we received at the beginning of this was about, oh, how, like Armstrong is not the president of the UN and coming to answer these questions as if he's that guy. That was so odd to me in this press conference to see him like, play that like a song <laughs>
1: mm, yes, <laughs> like he yes. was like
2: oh, I'm gonna play the changes this way on this yeah. one and then he he kind of I think he kept seeing in his mind the points when he would shift the tone to humor or shift the tone to defiance you know or shift the tone to squinting when I pull my cigarette <laughs> you know <laughs> like I think for a lot of people they had never seen Armstrong's face even look like that right like no smile, right? I'm just here, (laughs) Mm. you know?
0: Yes, and Jason made a new work um, uh, that that wasn't planned, but it's bringing exactly that, the press conference and the concert the day after together. Uh, You're putting them side by side. It, it it, It is part of the concert and the whole press conference. So actually you can see Armstrong, talking while he's playing and his own music is a soundtrack to the press conference and the way you put those songs together it's totally amazing because there are these moments of interaction interplay between both of them where you have the greatest swish and, and that is a work that developed out of the preparations of the exhibition and that we're really glad to have there because that, that is a that is at the core of the, I think, of the ground floor of the exhibition, um, figuring out how was the situation for Armstrong. We're not reconstructing the whole tour. That is not what we wanted to do. We're not uh, getting into jazz in the GDR, this and that. No, no. It's really focused in the situation, the ambivalent situation he was into.
1: I think that's brilliant. And it's brilliant because, quite frankly, it is about being in between. And that's tuna. And one of the things that you just said struck me, which is that people weren't used to seeing Armstrong's face in this particular way. And one of the reasons that I think that most people haven't seen that and which contributes to us uh, seeing him differently is lag time. Mm. There's a lag time between some of the questions and when he's answering. Mm. It's a lag time Mm. of translation Mm. where he doesn't understand, then he does understand, Mm. then he decides (laughs) how to respond. (laughs) And it's, you know, that to me is the excruciating moment. Mm. As you watch him understand the question, Mm. get pissed off at the question, (laughs) then decide on a nice answer to it, right? Or that same process and a defiant answer or dismissive answer. And so, I mean, Armstrong was known as sort of the consummate performer, right, on and off stage. But there's some powerful moments there that aren't about what he says. It's about the lag time between him hearing something and then saying something about it.
0: And he uh, continuously turns back to his audience. Mm-hmm. And um, when he's asked about the wall, he says, I don't worry about the wall. I worry about my audience. I'm going to play to tomorrow night. Um, then later he says, listen to Sachma, Forget about everything else. Mm-hmm. And then he gets even clearer with this, with this statement. I can say what I want to say, but if you let me, I'll say it. Forget about all that other bullshit. Mm -hmm. And there you can feel the tension in the room and the temperature going higher. Uh, The translator being nervous, Mm -hmm. not knowing how to translate that Mm -hmm. in that system. Um, That is a very... It was very stressful to watch it. Mm -hmm. Very,
1: very stressful. I, you know... (sighs) I agree that it's incredibly awkward, and there's a tension in that room throughout. But at the same time, he's in control. He's utterly in control, and that's part of what was so captivating to me about him. This was the first, right? He was the first jazz musician to do this kind of tour. And he was the first as a kind of political statement, right? They were trying to instrumentalize him to put forward a sense of, you know, East German socialism being much more progressive and embracing black folks. Um, We embrace them so much that we're gonna let Louis Armstrong and jazz come to town. So there was this gesture that they were trying to do through him and to make him their instrument. And one of the things that's going on at that, that press conference is him saying, I'm not going to be your instrument, right? He's only there because he knows he has an audience, right? And he is dismissing these attempts to make him into a pawn and... You know, he was criticized, you know, historically for being too, you know, being aloof at times. And then he went all in, you know, he went all in after Little Rock. Right. And so this was another one of those moments when he goes all in on his own terms. Right. So I'm again, I will play because this is an not if he didn't have an audience, he wouldn't play. <laughs>
0: yeah
1: he will he wouldn't play there's not enough money in the world for you to get louis Armstrong without an audience and that's the thing he keeps saying when he keeps saying i play for my audience meaning i'm not even in this room right like, i'm required to be here but you know
0: maybe we should talk about norman lewis because when we talk about uh black and blue and the the songs that that Armstrong chose for this tour um there is also something very political about that and he even changed the lyrics of that song in the gdr right jason maybe you want to tell that
2: part yeah well it was one that that he reintroduces this song to his set list which he hadn't been performing of which he was always famous saying i'm white inside and then in, on this tour, he says, I'm right inside. And it, it's about a slip of the tongue, but he ain't slipping. <laughs> that ain't that is, that is no not, slip. Yeah, it ain't no slip. <laughs> but, like then, but then in, in, in Glenn's work, which is also what Glenn also focuses on, he focuses on language, and he focuses on, even in the works where the paint crawls down the, the canvas and starts to distort, like he's also f- focusing on this the need for repetition, and a musician deciding to replay a song night after night and the way Armstrong did at this time in his career is a real commitment to the, this is a form that I'm presenting to an audience. It goes like this. This is the narrative I want to tell. And this is how I want to heat the room up. But Black and Blue, I always was thinking about these great Norman Lewis paintings um, and Norman's devotion to abstraction, the devotion uh, and the devotion that he has to the music which he always is documenting from bebop on through the 60s, the way that counterpoint starts to emerge for his painting in the 40s. But then by the 60s, it just becomes these this kind of like fields of, uh, of like oppression that he's battling not only on the canvas, but he's battling at the Met. You know, when he stands out front and says, how dare y'all have an uh, exhibition about Harlem? <laughs> and we're the, we're the artists of Harlem. Um, and that he's demanding this confrontation at the time that Armstrong is going on this tour and so Norman is in is in kind of like a trio with Lorna and with Glenn in this moment to bring that sensibility around color choice you know and when you talk about the way the way a color kind of like can stain the mind uh, or stay in the mind that's a thing that I felt when I saw this work of Norman Lewis's, which is in a series of maybe five, of which only two are around, mm-hmm. and and I thought it would be great to have him near by, Glenn, uh, talking about the slip of the tongue and the bruise and the blues, and the reason that Armstrong is reintroducing black and blue. It's kind of like one of the more overt places we stand mm-hmm. in the exhibition, right, Paula?
0: Yes, yes, and it's also the when you were talking about repetitions. Um, Also that uh, Glenn Ligon is using the composition by Steve Reich that is made of repetitions Mm -hmm. uh, and they get more and more intense. And there we have a dialogue, you know, Glenn Ligon and Ruth Wolfreyfeld that was typing in the 70s in the GDR a homage to Martin Luther King. And that is not uh, the homage, you know, it's not the propaganda, it's not... A commissioned work by the GDR to do something in solidarity it was made very differently and we have both of those versions we have Willis Sitte who was working for the for the official art you know making up a, a portrait of of Angela Davis but we also have those very intimate works of uh, Ruth who works a little bit like a composer I don't know the the show feels sometimes like there are so many musicians in it, even though they're <laughs> <laughs> different <laughs> artists. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there are musicians everywhere <laughs> in
1: every discipline, I guess. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of music yeah. in there, a lot of sound. Yeah. <laughs> it seems to me that, and this was in our conversation, the way in which you're asking visitors to inhabit both music and visual art simultaneously on the on different terms um it sounds like it was key to your selection um your curatorial selections and we were talking about that a little bit earlier which is that it is unusual to take a historical event like this tour as the occasion for a contemporary art exhibition and to organize it not as documentary right not as contemporaneous right so it's not representational in any way and what you do instead is you ask visitors to confront their their time and space in history through sound and vision and it's it's a beautiful beautiful um sort of curatorial motivation, which is to bring people into a space where they're never in one place at a time. They're always in a multiplicity of places. They are trying to understand a relationship to Armstrong, right, and his music, Mm -hmm. but not through Armstrong and his music, Right. right? So you're expanding how we understand Armstrong, right, in this particular moment right as well as in his own moment and those different layers are so challenging and so beautiful (laughs) (laughs) to have them combined indeed
0: Um, i felt very lost during the preparation sometimes And Jason, as a musician, always says, it's good to be lost. You know, (laughs) know, it's like the improvising musician thinking, it's great, we're lost.
2: (laughs) Meaning you have to have support to be lost.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The thing was, uh, uh, as you were saying right now, there are very different ways to, many different ways to navigate this show. And many layers to it, to do a connection to Armstrong himself, to the tour to the time then, to our time. There are also works, you know, I feel like Glenn Ligon, that is something that happened in the 60s, right? Just one year before Armstrong came to the GDR, 64, that happened, that incident that he's, dealing with. And then you go to Lorna Simpson, is the 90s, you know, and then you go further. It's like, then you have Gordon Parks with Invisible Man, then you, you have Angela Davis coming to the GR, you have, and there are so many layers. A- and there is also a very mm, metaphorical way of going through the show too, where you don't even, where there are all of these metaphors for sound and for music, you know. Uh, Maybe without even knowing the background of the work, uh, there is this, you know, like Terry Atkins, you know, this, I I couldn't, I I was so surprised when I saw it live Mm -hmm. because it's huge Mm -hmm. and it really feels like a very big sound like he describes it, right? Uh, what was the d- description of him? Like a very... Well, a, bright d- a big light. sound or a bright
1: light. Yes. And the, the thing that is so extraordinary about that is that he's talking about divine intervention. And he's talking about divine intervention in relationship to, um, to John Brown's uh, incursion into Harper's Ferry. And so the, the divinity of a big sound and a big light. But it's not just the divinity of it, how divinity can lead you to to quite literally, you know, put your body at risk for others. Mm. Right? So that intervention that I and mean, and I mean when I was reading about the piece, I was just the multiple layers of it, which is to go all the way back to John Brown, a white man who was trying to liberate enslaved black folks, mm. right? And failed, <laughs> you know, and failed catastrophe, ca- catastrophically. But, right, to linger on what that was as divine intervention, not civil rights, <laughs> right? Mm. Not racial justice. It was what inspired him. And then to move forward with that, right? To move forward with what does it mean to actually, in this moment in time, when Christian nationalism is actually supposed to be, it's directed against, right, divine intervention towards freedom of migrants and this, that, and the other, right? He's actually bringing us back to what a divine intervention can build, right? How it can set people free. And... You know, and to me, that choice, that selection was really gorgeous because it's not just a mute that so very much symbolizes um, Louis Armstrong. It's way larger than that. And getting us to think beyond Armstrong's horn, <laughs> right? We always think about Armstrong and his horn. But what about thinking about that horn? beyond the horn, what that horn opens up, what that sound actually can call forth, that to me is the way in which the visual art and the sound of it, when we listen to it, can give us a much more fulsome understanding of the significance of both an individual and an individual in their times.
2: Atkins also his like his devotion to music. (laughs) Yes. I mean, um, over the years, knowing him and laughing with him and listening to him talk shit, (laughs) (laughs) which he did so well. (laughs) Uh, He was incredible. Um, But because I think he understood that there's something that we I feel like also this is a very the past 10 years have been very much a Terry Atkins made moment. Mm-hmm. Of watching institutions really understand that performance is necessary. Mm-hmm. It's like as important as the sculpture or, or the or the, the painting is unique performance. And Terry has has long spent much of his time investigating the sound. I felt like he planted so much in his canon mm-hmm. that leads us to so much understanding that can happen now in a space like this. That for when we were coming up with like who has to be in here was like <laughs> Terry You know, also out of deep love for for what he left us, has to be here because he really also really cared about it and was not afraid to get on stage and try to make it, which I feel (laughs) like is a very vulnerable place that an artist can place themselves when they leave their tradition. But he wanted to make no, the tradition is to be in multiple places. Mm -hmm. The Divine Mute was, of course, when, when you sent photographs of it being, you know, uncreated, I thought, oh my God, it's. Much larger than <laughs> I thought.
1: Does it fit in <laughs> it that wall? Barely, it barely fit on the wall,
2: and that and and that's Terry too. Yeah. He knows how to take up space. the space, you know. Mm-hmm. Lorna has a, that. The work demands three walls. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, Glenn's de- demands space, and then space between the neons. You know, like these are works that that seem if you just walked in you you'd have to then say oh wait there's a vibration in here that I might need to listen for you know right
1: i mean i also i think that that's really important that what you're emphasizing scale mm. right that scale also produces its own sound mm. but i appreciate the scale because it makes certain demands of me and having an exhibition where scale is so central um, both in terms of the object itself but also the way in which sound itself takes up space right sound goes right through you Mm. that's the hardest thing you can possibly do in curation is isolate sound so you have to intentionally know what is bleeding from and into Mm. and that the, the pervasiveness of sound to me is also something that's important Um, It's very different than the visual, right? You have to be looking at it, Mm -hmm. right? Um, But to allow those sounds to bleed into one another and make contact with you, um, that's both a challenge and at the same time, it has the potential to to be transformative. Mm -hmm. So I'm so happy to hear that the intentionality of, you know, both sound and scale in terms of shaping an encounter and reshaping those who are involved in that encounter mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: and keeping the room very open mm-hmm. so that so that you as a visitor are able to to make connections in every direction you know
2: but I wonder <laughs> because you're also teaching now right mm-hmm. so you're dealing with a lot of young minds getting introduced to material mm-hmm. maybe for the first time right. and then they're asked to have to open up that session and like okay now figure out what does timbre mean or what is tone in a room or tone in a text? And how do you help people find strategies through that?
1: I feel that the, the most challenging and the most gratifying process of teaching is when your students um, surprise you. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> because they can articulate something different on different terms. And I don't ever have to to test them, <laughs> oh, right. I have mm-hmm. to be open to what they are allowing me to see and hear mm-hmm. and feel um, about the terms that I use, mm-hmm. like frequency, uh, like listening. Um, and I am immensely <laughs> gratified by what I learn from my students as opposed to um, teaching them. Mm-hmm that teaching to me is a process of dialogical learning. Um, they're teaching you what it means to make and to think while you're making. That's a band.
2: Yeah, that's a band. <laughs> <laughs> quite but quite that's literally. Band. <laughs> that's that, but, but
1: that's
0: what, what I was uh, thinking, that you know, there is so much to learn from the music. It's uh, very much about listening to each other, like like feeling feeling the room also, feeling... You were talking about temperature. I think the temperature is really important feeling the bandmates the other ones i mean i i i felt very uh, honored and privileged to be able to do this show with you jason because there's a lot to learn from the music and uh, and also the the courage to take risks and to think further and to not stay only in what you already know from the art world you know it was really amazing. Um and I think that comes from the music, I'm sure.
2: Yeah. And you talked about it Paula about works also having the potential for sound. Like so that even though works weren't actively making sound, that you also had to acknowledge the potential sound in the space. But that potential part for me is so important in a in a in a museum space where the eye is turned on when you walk through the door versus a concert space where your ear is turned on when you walk into the building or the venue. And then the demand that we <laughs> keep more of the senses open and less defined about how you enter a room. Um, and so the the exhibition is relatively quiet. It's <laughs> <Yes>. a <laughs> relatively yes. quiet show. Lorna's humming in the mm. wall is possibly the one of the more audible sounds you know even when his concert is playing downstairs it's it's quite Mm -hmm. soft for such a loud individual you know what I mean and that was also like a I think when um in because we've walked into gallery spaces before we know how they feel I always think like you tell me how you want me to interact by how loud my footstep is when I walk in here like do, should I be self-conscious now because I hear my heel hit the floor or can I relax into the space or how the lighting is in this room? So part of it was also trying to give an audience a space to, to walk in and not feel like they knew the answer, you know, which is a very hard thing in a museum. Uh, but I But I felt like our favorite works were able to kind of like, step back from it even though the context was so rich with complexity, you know, for for all the the work the artists that you were mentioning. And then Gordon Parks' part about not kind of defining his own role as an artist, meaning like moving constantly, migrating between these spaces.
0: I wanted to talk about one thing with you what is that. <laughs> We translated the text, you remember? Yes. And and you insisted in keeping the German word Rasse Mm -hmm. in the text, Mm -hmm. the translation of race, Mm -hmm. Um, which I was like, oh, 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 wow. We we need to commend that. And I learned a lot from you um, because what we were thinking about is about keeping the English term race, to not forget the whole um, discourse and struggle and history surrounding it from the perspective of African-American history. You were thinking about the German history. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, it's true.
0: Why did you insist in keeping the translation, the literal translation of race into "Rasse," which is a term that is avoided actually in the actual discourse in Germany? Mm hmm.
1: Um, I insisted on that because I insist that we confront the connotations of race and the history of racialization in all languages that that which um, I, I refuse to distinguish between the pejorative history of the term "Kasse" in German from the pejorative history of the term race in the United States. That everything that one is attempting to do by translating Hasa only into race, right? That term has exactly the same history and perhaps even more pernicious a history in the United States. So every time you read that term, you have to confront in your own language the history of that term in that place. So displacing the complexity of race onto an English word <laughs> it doesn't make any sense to me. It makes absolutely no sense to me. Um, so I wanted that conversation to be ongoing and to be ongoing in every language. It's a song about America But it's about a whole lot of places. Because it's not just America where shit's fucked up. And it's not always time to be neutral, you know what I mean?
0: is so important you know we're we've been receiving um some reactions (laughs) uh, from visitors (laughs) there's always a um there are different reactions of course it it has a lot to do with also with memories you know and identity and maybe um some visitors are maybe a little bit disappointed that we're asking questions surrounding this tour, which for them was just spectacular, you know, a spectacular Mm. event Mm. that they have in their memory as something very special. And so we come with works that are making it more complex. Mm. Um, And there's one question that they're asking me again and again, and also the press. Are there any um, evidences for racism in the GDR towards Louis Armstrong <laughs> and I don't I don't even get the question um, it feels like w- why do we need any evidence in a in a journal or in a memoir or in his tapes that he experienced that exactly there and maybe that is also that is why I come to this question right now because when you mm-hmm. say race and rasa. You know what I answer? I answer always, um, I don't need no evidence. Yeah. There, there was and still is racism everywhere and it's a structural problem. So why are we searching
1: outside of us? What I find most interesting is those memories always paper over things that you decide not to remember. There are always the more that you hold on to per- specific memories or recollections of an event the more you bleed, blend out all this other stuff, all the scission mm-hmm. right? All the ambivalences, right? And part of what you're describing in terms of what the exhibition is doing is it's bringing forward all of that ambivalence because it wasn't all positive, right? Because the context was freighted with tension. And to be able to bring people out of their comfort zone of, I was there and this happened, right? Yes, you were there and that happened. And there's a whole lot of other shit that you didn't decide, that you decide to look away from, right? And so again, that question of that which we see does not give us the truth, and what we're tr- what you're trying to do in this exhibition is to challenge people to be able to contend with the multiple truths right mm-hmm. of Louis Armstrong's tour of the GDR there were multiple truths that were going on there there were multiple perspectives and they're still resident and they're still incredibly relevant today i wouldn't make any of my arguments necessarily specific to Germany. Um, I think we have the same thing in the United States. Um, but again, I am i spend a lot of time thinking about how do societies displace their traumatic um, encounters and conflicts onto more available targets.
2: This is also part of the conversation we were having in the beginning around Mm. the press conference when he says I've seen the wall is I was like, You think he's talking about that wall? This is Louis Armstrong grew up in New Orleans at the turn of the century. Mm. You think he's talking about he's sixty something years old when he shows up here. You think he's talking about that wall? When he says flippantly, I've seen the wall Mm. moving on. Like you think he's talking about that wall and and the available targets in America that he's seen for his family, for his friends, for his bandmates, pawns for war. You know, um, that by the time he's in that stage of his life, getting given a question like that, uh, that's why we call the show I've Seen the Wall. Mm -hmm. Because he's like, baby, it ain't that wall that I'm talking about.
0: Hearing you talking about walls and, and Adrian Piper, who I think... When was this made? Breakdown, this this composition by you uh, with the bandwagon um, playing to the sound of the voice of Adrian Piper breaking it all down, Bra- break down the barriers, break mm. down misunderstanding, break down the art presuppositions, world. Yeah. the art world. Break down artists. The audience. Break down the general,
2: the general public. public. <laughs> <laughs> break it all down. Break it all break down. Break down
1: the barriers. Break down misunderstanding. Break down the art world. Break down the artists. Break down the general public. Break down their society. Break down procedures. Break down presuppositions. Break down intentions.
0: Sometimes I think uh, if we if we could reach that place where we break some of them down, we've made it. Then.
2: Thank you so much for joining us, Tina. It's <laughs> really welcome. been incredible uh, conversation, and we thank you all for listening uh, to the third episode of our podcast.
1: It's wonderful. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Thank you for joining us. Cheers. I'm glad I made it.
2: <laughs> yes I'm glad you made it too We were going to figure out Some other way <laughs> But I'm glad I'm glad
1: you made it It's understanding Right now The art world